following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. When I was a teenager, in my late teenage years, one of the things that I, that I did every year was went to an event called Summer Harvest. I don't know whether some of you have been there. It was run by Youth for Christ, and me and some mates every year would go up to Summer Harvest. It, it basically involved sticking a whole lot of teenagers on buses and bussing them up to some remote corner of Northland where not even we had any idea where we were. And for a week, these, these farm paddocks would become veritable tent cities, and we'd, we'd tent in our, in our regional groupings, and we'd have tribal wars, and we had these big barn meetings, literally in a barn, sitting on haystacks, and worshipping, and they had great speakers come in, Christian speakers, who were engaging and funny and challenging. And we went to the beach and we played games, and we had a great time. And for a week, every year, I got really fired up about my faith, really passionate about being a Christian, and I just wanted to be, you know, all the phrases we throw around, I wanted to be sold out for Jesus, I wanted to be on fire for God, I wanted to be a radical disciple of Jesus, and there's just nothing I wanted more than to live my life to the glory of God. And then I got home, and the holidays ended, and school started, and you know what happens. It just kind of, all the passion just over time leaked out and ebbed away. And I went back to a fairly average kind of relationship with God and a fairly average kind of Christian faith. I was a Christian, I had a genuine faith, but it just, I, I struggled to really maintain that, that passion and that desire that I had. And then I'd go back to summer harvest the next year, and I'd get all fired up again about God and about Jesus. And then the same thing would happen. And this was an annual cycle in my life for year after year. And I remember talking about it with a friend at Summer Harvest one year and saying, why has this happened? Like we, we knew what was going on. Even at the time, we, we, we said to each other, why? We get so fired up. How come we can't carry this on? How come we go back to normal? And it just all leaks out. I think what I was struggling with at that stage in my life was something that's so endemic to all of us who follow Jesus, and that is that we have these moments of great desire, these moments when we really want to follow Jesus. And maybe it's a church service, maybe it's a camp or a conference or just a quiet moment in your bedroom. We have these times when we just want to follow Jesus, but we struggle so much, don't we, to translate that into everyday living to translate it into normal life. There's just this gaping chasm between the mountaintop moments of surrender, commitment, I want to be sold out for Jesus, and ordinary, mundane, normal life where we barely have time to even think about our spiritual lives. And this leaves a lot of Christians in this place that A.W. Tozer describes as the perpetual childhood of the believer where a lot of Christians, maybe most Christians, experience some spiritual growth, often early on in their spiritual life when they've made a commitment to Jesus, they experience some growth but find it really hard to get out of a spiritual childhood, kind of grow as far as spiritual kids, maybe spiritual adolescents, but really struggle to pursue maturity, to really see growth and progress in their lives, to really move on to adulthood. And, and that might be you. If you look back over two years, five years, ten years, maybe... If you're honest with yourself, maybe you struggle to see much growth, real genuine growth and progress in terms of your relationship with God and 
the character of Christ in your life, Christ being formed in you. And the reality is we're so frantically busy that we barely have time to think about these things anyway. Most of us, I think, live with some kind of desire to be better Christians, but very little time to do much about it and maybe only vague motivation to really address it. We stay in this state of perpetual childhood as Christians. So thanks for coming today, everybody. It's been great, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> That's a cherry start, isn't it? And, and honestly, I, I really vowed to myself at the beginning of this series that this would not be a big beat-up session. I mean, I just say that in all seriousness, because it's so easy with this stuff. I mean, we can go on about how bad we all are forever, but I really want to commit to you and hold me accountable to this at the beginning of the series, that this is not just guilt, condemnation, and beating us with a stick. Because I really believe that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. I really believe he said that, didn't he? And he, I think he was telling the truth. Take my yoke upon you, he said, and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I don't know exactly what to do with those words sometimes because, to be honest, at times the Christian life does feel brutally hard. But I really believe that Jesus invites us into a life that's not supposed to be wearisome and burdensome and soul-destroying. That he doesn't invite us into a life that's supposed to trap us in a bunch of shoulds and ought-tos and rules. I really believe that Jesus invites us into a life of freedom and a life of rest, a life of deeply resting, even while we're going about our everyday stuff, finding a deep anchorage in the grace of God and living out of that. And I think when we learn, as we learn to do that, we find that it's really a life of freedom and not a life of guilt and obligation and just trying harder and trying to be better moral Christians. That's so empty. That's so lifeless. But Jesus invites us into life and he invites us into a deep rest, rest for our souls. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to explore what that life looks like, the nature of the life that Jesus invites us to be a part of. And I'll just say at the beginning of the series that I'm grappling with all of this stuff just like you, that I certainly have not arrived and I have not got this figured out and I am no great model to follow. You can just ask my wife. Uh, I'm struggling on the journey just like you. I'm bumbling along just like you are. But I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm hungry for growth. I'm hungry for it in my life. I really am. And I just pray this is a journey we can take together and that through it the Spirit of God might do something in our lives, something new, something real in our lives, to draw us closer to Jesus. So today, uh, what I want to do is just give you uh, a framework to think about how we grow. We're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of the series today, but I want to give you an overview of, of how I think people do or don't experience spiritual growth in their lives. A way of understanding this, and, and I'm speaking out of my own story here, um, inevitably, and also today drawing on the work of a writer who I've really come to appreciate, a guy called James K.A. Smith, who has written on how people are formed, how people are shaped uh, deeply in the core of our being. So I'm drawing on some of his insights today too. Uh, when, when I was in seminary, Anna and I spent two years in the States, and I was fortunate enough to have two years where really pretty much all I did was study scripture and theology. 
And I don't take that for granted. That was an amazing opportunity for me, and that was my job. I, didn't, I wasn't working. Uh, I was able just to immerse myself in Scripture and theology and study the Scriptures in preparation for pastoral ministry. And yet, honestly, during those two years, I experienced some of the spiritually driest times in my life. And that caught me off guard, because I wasn't expecting that. And I remember one of our professors one day talking about it and saying that's very common, that students will come through, and they're doing this academic study, and they sense in their own souls a disconnect from God. And I remember doing my master's thesis, sitting there at my little laptop, typing away on Paul's great vision for the church and the death and resurrection of Jesus and how it should give shape to the lives that we live. And I remember thinking, I don't see a lot of this in my life. I love the study and I love the engagement of this, but I don't see much of this really, the dying of Jesus in my own life. And I think what I was coming to appreciate in a new way is that head knowledge is really not going to get us there. Just more information is not going to do that. Um, I love studying the scriptures. I still do. I love teaching the scriptures. Uh, But God is showing me, I think, in in a new way that just relying on more information, and I think this is something Christians have done too much, is just assuming that we can just think our way to transformation. And that if we're educated enough, that if we have enough information from the Bible, and if we study hard enough and throw enough Bible verses around that we're automatically going to grow. And and I just don't really believe that anymore. I think Scripture's essential. I love the study of theology, but I don't think we can just rely on head knowledge to transform us at the deepest level. What I've come to be be more aware of is I think the, the primary dimension of our lives that is important for spiritual growth is not our head but our heart. And that might sound obvious, but this is something God has been instilling in me. That it's not primarily about head knowledge, but about the disposition of our hearts and the desires, the deep desires that are in our hearts and what we love the most. I want to read you some words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. He says in verse 45, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It's actually quite a simple process, isn't it? But that's quite different to how a lot of us live and how a lot of us understand spiritual growth. Jesus says there's there's really an inevitable connection between the disposition of your heart, whether it's good or evil, and the quality and the character of your life. What is stored up in your heart will naturally come out in your life. You don't need to think about that. You can't control that part of it. It's like a flower growing towards the sunlight. The sunlight is whatever is within your heart, the deepest desires. And I mean the heart in a scriptural sense of the innermost core of our being, the source of our deepest desires, passions, and affections in life, the source of our greatest loves. And whatever it is that our heart loves, truly loves, we will grow toward that naturally we will become what we love you don't have to try don't have to think about it in fact right now we are becoming what our hearts desire it's not really a question of whether you're experiencing spiritual growth or not it's a question in what direction are you growing 
as Jesus would put it, what is stored up in your heart? Good or evil or something in between? Because that will determine the course of your life. So then the question really becomes, how can I influence my heart? If the heart determines the character of my life, how can I direct my heart? And this is where the answer has been to me a little bit surprising, but has really resonated. The way the heart is trained is through habits. Habits and practices of our lives. And I don't just mean habits of thinking, not just cognitive habits, important as they are, but physical and bodily habits, embodied practices in our lives. Through habits, our heart is shaped, and the shaping of our heart determines the character of our lives. Here's the way that James Smith puts it. He says, Our habits thus constitute the fulcrum of our desire. They are the hinge that turns our heart, our love, such that it is predisposed to be aimed in certain directions. To give you another example or or analogy, uh, our habits, the habits of our lives, are like the ship's wheel, the wheel of a ship. And the wheel is connected to the rudder, the rudder representing our heart. So the habits and practices, everyday habits and practices of our lives, steer the rudder of our heart in a certain direction, and the rudder, in turn, turns the ship in a certain way, directing the course of our lives. Our habits on our own, on their own, don't steer the ship. The steering wheel itself doesn't do the whole job. But the habits and practices of our lives train or direct the desires of our heart in a certain direction. And we will naturally grow toward what our heart loves. James Smith maps this out with that diagram where the habits of our heart aim our heart in certain directions, toward a a certain target, if you like, that right now each of us have in our lives, within our hearts, a vision of what good life looks like, a vision of what real living looks like, a vision of what we love the most. Whatever that vision is, whatever your heart loves the most, you are right now growing toward that. And that has been shaped by all kinds of habits and practices that have trained your heart to love that thing. I'll give you an example, real-life example of how this works. When Anna and I were in America, we went to a basketball game at the university where we were studying, and we were sitting there, standing there, with um, friends waiting for the game to start. And then at a certain point, without anything being said, as far as I remember, everybody in the room turned their bodies about 45 degrees. And we weren't sure what was happening. So we just kind of shuffled around with everybody else. And then we realized what we were all facing was the flag, the American flag in the corner of the room, and the national anthem started. And everybody put their hands on their heart and sung the national anthem. That's a practice that shapes the heart. Every day, every school day in America, millions of school children stand at their desks and they put their hand on their heart and they say in unison the Pledge of Allegiance. Now you could argue, well, that's just a a mindless practice that's not very significant, but is it any coincidence that America is one of the most patriotic nations in the world? 
Now, I'm not arguing the rights or wrongs of that, the rights or wrongs of these practices. That's not the point. The point is, I think there's an inseparable connection between those kinds of habits, habits that people can do even without thinking about it at times, and the desire of our heart and the direction of our lives. So you don't have to convince many Americans to be patriotic. They don't try really hard to do it. It doesn't take a lot of willpower. They are naturally patriotic people because their heart has been shaped with a love for their country. And that has been formed by all kinds of habits and practices they have adopted since a very early age. It's shaped a patriotic heart that in turn has shaped a patriotic life. It's one example of the way I think this process works. So when you start understanding growth, personal growth, spiritual growth this way, I think it has huge implications for us. Because it means that right now we're engaged in all kinds of habits and practices, embodied practices in our lives, that are having a real effect on our hearts, sometimes in ways we're not even fully aware of. Just as one example, think about how many times in the last 24 hours you've handed over a credit card or an FPOS card. And nothing wrong with that, of course. But is it possible that that everyday practice, repetitive, almost ritualistic practice, is having an effect on our heart, shaping us with a consumer desire in ways that we don't even fully appreciate or maybe can't articulate? If the habits and practices of our lives really matter, then right now you are being discipled, whether you like it or not. Right now you are being spiritually formed. Whether you're a Christian, Buddhist, atheist, Hindu, whatever, you are being spiritually shaped in one way or another, simply by virtue of the habits and practices of our everyday lives. And so the question becomes even clearer from a Christian perspective. How then do we go about the whole process of spiritual formation, spiritual growth, growing into the character of Christ? The clearest and most obvious place to start is at the level of, of our everyday practices and habits. That if we can adopt in our lives practices that aim our hearts toward Christ, that aim our hearts toward the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of Reuben, then we are going to be on the road to growth in our life toward that which we love, towards Christ's vision of life rather than our own vision of life. What we tend to do is start at the other end of the process, and we start with trying to act in different ways, to be moral people, to try and behave in a moral way, to try and use our willpower to pursue the kind of life that we want. But the kind of life that is a fruitful spiritual life will be the natural result of a heart that desires Christ above all. And a heart that desires Christ above all will be shaped over time by everyday habits and practices. So let me just give you one that I'm doing right now. Not right now, but in my life these days. One of the things I'm doing um, in the mornings, most mornings of the week, as I have a, a focused time with God, quiet time, whatever you call it, is I've started kneeling down to pray. Just at the end of my quiet time, I kneel down at my chair and I say aloud a prayer. Uh, it's, it's not my own words. It comes from a, a, a book of prayers uh, for each day of the week. And I kneel down and I say one of these prayers each day. Now, again, you could write that off as a silly, ritualistic, meaningless practice. But for me, that's my pledge of allegiance every day. And I believe 
I'm coming to appreciate this more and more. That is training my heart. Because I believe that's not just something I'm doing. Kneeling down is not just a practice I'm doing. It's a practice that's doing something to me. That what it's doing is teaching my heart to adopt the posture of my body. Submitted. Bowed down. I really believe that at a deep level, in a way I can't fully articulate, that simple practice, and not by itself, and not that that alone is going to transform my life, but among other things, that simple practice is having an effect on my heart and, and turning the rudder of my heart a little further, another notch toward Christ and his kingdom so that growth happens. There's a range of practices that we're going to talk about over the next eight weeks. But I want us at the outset to understand why we're talking about these things. The purpose of the habits and the practices that we're going to discuss and describe and explore, the purpose of these practices is not to make you a good moral Christian or to somehow please God or earn his favor or things that we should do or whatever. The purpose of these practices is to direct our hearts toward Christ is to direct and turn the rudder of our heart another notch toward the kingdom of heaven and to train our hearts through embodied practices to desire God above all, believing that the growth will follow. The fruit will follow when the tree is deeply planted and anchored and watered and nurtured. So the practices we're going to talk about, they're not particularly new. They're not novel. In fact, they're really, really old. Most of them go back to the life of Jesus. Things like prayer, feeding on Scripture, worship, rest. These kinds of practices that Christians through the centuries have embedded in their lives as a way of training their hearts to desire Christ. But we're going to talk about these practices not just in a way that we think differently about them, but in a way that they become habits. Because without habits, without adopting these practices into the everyday, ordinary rhythms of our lives, our hearts won't fully be captured. And we're going to talk about these habits in ways that are physical, that involve all of our senses, because it's easy to have a very reductive view of the human person as just a brain walking around. Everything we do focuses on what we get into our brain, but we're going to take a more holistic view, believing that our whole bodies are important in the process of spiritual formation. After all, didn't Paul say in Romans 12:1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice? Not just what we think, but our whole bodies. God knows if he's got our bodies, he's got all of us. So we're going to talk about ways that we can involve our whole physicality in the practice of these habits, everyday rhythms, even maybe redeeming the word ritual and taking it out of the dry and dusty and old school approach to rituals that can be life-giving, rhythms of our life that can train our hearts for the purpose of growing in godliness toward Christ. And what I'm hoping will happen as we do this, that these habits and practices will not just tune us in more to God in a way that just involves me and Him, but will also allow us to open up to what God might be saying to us about others 
and on behalf of others. And this is where loving each other and loving the world comes in, that these practices can actually become very mission-oriented, that as you involve yourself in the practice of prayer, for example, waiting on God, it might be that what God wants to do in you and through you is give you a greater love and heart for your neighbor, literally your neighbor, and put on your heart a way in which you might be able to serve them. I remember once I went on this great spiritual retreat, praying for the church, seeking God's direction for the church, seeking a vision, seeking a plan, seeking His will. And the one thing that I came away from that day with as the strongest impression on my heart was focus on your role as a husband. That's what I got. That's what I sensed God saying to me. And I sensed that that was about don't focus so much on leading a church. Focus on drawing close to me and having healthy relationships and let me form you and the work will spill out into the lives of other people. So let's be open to what God might do and say through these practices in our hearts as we adopt them. I want to encourage you, just as we wrap up this morning, in your bulletin, you've got a little handout there, and it says, doing a practices or habits audit in your life. Just pull that out for a moment. I'd encourage you over the next week to have a look at these questions. They're questions that lead you to think about some of the practices and habits that are already going on in your life because we're already being shaped and formed by all kinds of practices. So go through those questions when you've got a quiet moment, or see if you can free up some time. What are the habits and practices that are shaping you? What effect might they be having on you? Is it possible that some habits in your life that you thought were neutral and just, you know, irrelevant or indifferent are in fact more significant and might be having more of an effect on your heart and therefore on your life? than you originally thought. I'd encourage you to work through those because it'll start to give you a snapshot of where you're at now in terms of how your heart is currently being shaped and formed. And that'll lay the foundation for some of the practices and habits we'll talk about in the coming weeks. And as we finish and close today, we are going to conclude by practicing one of the practices, and that's communion. The good news is that you might already be spiritually formed without even realizing it, simply by being here and participating in the sacrament of communion every week. And just think for a minute of when Jesus gave his disciples this pattern to follow, this pattern of communion. I mean, he could have sat down with them the night before he died and said, now guys, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to understand. You need to know the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Here it is. Could have got out a whiteboard, had some PowerPoint slides. We're gonna, we need to understand this, guys. But he didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He said, here's some bread. And here's a glass of wine. Now take these. And isn't, isn't it brilliant the way Jesus knew? This, this beautiful symbol. We actually have to physically ingest these elements. We actually have to absorb them into our bodies. And in doing so, we believe that they are truly a sacrament, a means of grace. Jesus takes ordinary things, everyday things, and infuses them with divine meaning and significance. He gives us a meal, a physical meal to have together because he knows that these kinds of practices through repetition do have an impact on our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that you come along each week, take communion, you're suddenly going to be transformed. But taken in the right spirits, taken over time, I believe that this meal, this sacred meal, 
really does help to steer our hearts toward Christ and center us on him and on his kingdom. And I'd encourage you as you take this meal this morning to take your time with it, to enjoy the physicality of it, the way that it engages multiple senses, and to think and reflect on this process of how a practice like this might just be getting its way into our heart in a very subtle way. The way that this kind of habit is forming in our heart a desire for Christ and the way in which, out of the good that this is storing up in our heart, Jesus promises the good person will bring forth good out of the good stored up. Not, not, not might, not you've got to try hard, but will. This is inevitable. The disposition of our heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The life acts. So let's train our hearts, direct our hearts, through practices that center on Jesus, that we might be those trees planted by streams of living water that yield their fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, says someone. It's my heart's desire. I pray that it becomes our heart's desire and directs the course of our lives. Let's pray and we'll enter into communion together. God, your word tells us that above all else we should guard our hearts because everything we do flows from it. So help us, Lord, to guard our hearts. And even now, God, we just sit here and reflect on the condition our hearts are in what our hearts are really desiring. Lord, for most of us, I know for me, those desires are mixed. We do desire you, God. We desire the life that you bring, but we desire other things, selfish things as well. Show us, Lord Jesus, how we can direct our hearts toward you, how we can cultivate in our hearts a deep love for you, so that our lives grow towards you. Help us to guard our hearts. And as we take this meal this morning that centers us on your death, help us to enjoy it. Help us to revel in it. And help us to deeply appreciate the way that as we consume the wafer and the juice, we are, in a very real sense, consuming you, Jesus. Drinking of your grace eating your body, feasting on Christ. And we thank you that as we do that, you give life to our souls. Come and do a work in each of our hearts and within our church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.